Welcome to episode 5 of the Paradox PT podcast, where we discuss all things physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and clinical practice. My name is Leo Falzon. Today, I'm speaking with my colleague Adrian Fliss about femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, or FAI for short. Adrian is a registered physio who provides care at two clinics in the GTA, Shedden Physiotherapy and Sports Clinic in Oakville and Umana Health in Etobicoke. Now, our topic today is a bit of a daunting one. FAI is a highly contentious area in the literature and one that's not super well understood. There are a lot of gaps in the research around diagnosis, assessment, and management of FAI, and the bottom line is that it's a fairly young condition, which has really only been well described in literature for about 20 years. So we discussed the, the difficulty on the clinician side of it of distilling this research into uh, actionable steps that you can take to help diagnose, assess, and treat these people. Um, and hopefully we provide some clinical pros that would be of use to you as a, uh, you know, a new grad or a student who's not super comfortable with FAI. So if you are a student on a clinical rotation and you have somebody on your schedule tomorrow with hip impingement, my goal here is that this can make you a lot more confident in your clinical process. And if nothing else, at least help you educate the patient on what the condition is. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Adrian Fliss about femoral acetabular impingement. Okay, Adrian, back by popular demand. Thanks for uh, uh, everyone's requesting. Everybody, yeah, all <laughs> four of our six listeners exactly nice. uh, reached out. So thanks for coming back on. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be back. We've been uh, planning this one for a while. It'll be a good one. We have, we have. Um, so plan today is to do, I guess, a similar thing to what we did with patellar, like patellofemoral pain, but with femoral acetabular impingement, mm-hmm. FAI syndrome. So I figured we would start off by just defining what it is, and then we'll 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 go down the rabbit hole. So why don't we start off by by just putting a definition out there? What is FAI? Well, FAI means that you have hip pain of some sort, right? So that's um, a big factor. Now, are we kind of talking about diagnosis here? Or are we thinking about um, just like in general? Just like general, if, if somebody had never heard of FAI, mm. how would you describe it like in a sentence? Yeah, I think the easiest way to think of it is that biomechanical explanation. Um, there's some sort of structural issue happening at the hip that is creating pain for our patients. And what that structural issue can be resolves usually around the acetabulum or femoral neck area. Um, leads to some issues with range of motion that can be a little bit different than some of your like musculoskeletal pathologies. And uh, yeah, kind of affecting more of that athletic population is what we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I guess you can think of it as like movement, movement-related hip pain that's most often seen in young adults with like a sporting background yeah yeah yeah. that tends to definitely be the um area that affects most and i guess to differentiate between those other um all those other areas of hip pain you're going to be falling down into more of that capsular style of of impairment right there's something actually within the hip blocking motion yeah yeah and and causing pain so um Femoral acetabular impingement, femur is obviously, you know, the leg bone, and then the acetabulum is the hip socket, and so there's an issue in that, in that connection, that junction, um, and so yeah, like, I guess the way I framed it was fairly 
broad and doesn't mm. really distinguish between any of the other things that could be causing movement related pain at the hip in young mm. adults. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way, yeah, like I think we kind of need to, to move into the, the Warwick consensus to really put an operational definition on FAI. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that gives us three, three pillars of diagnosis and uh, yeah, why don't, why don't you start us off by, by taking us through like the first pillar? Mm-hmm. And this is where FAI can be a little bit daunting at first when you first learn about it, because there's actually quite a bit of content to even like get an understanding of what you're actually dealing with, right? So um, Warwick Consensus was a bunch of researchers pulling together, trying to get a sense of what this type of hip pain is and like how to categorize it. So Essentially, when we're thinking about the hip, uh, the classification systems go into either a CAM style of impairment or a pincer style of impairment, or you can have a little bit of both. When so, you say impairment, you mean impingement or impairment, like a morph, like a morphological change, like a yeah, like a morphological change, yeah. Okay. Because yeah, impingement is always a touchy subject, right? But it, I guess this is a good example in comparison to the shoulder where impingement is quite normal. It's not really that normal to have, you know, structures abutting on each other as much as yeah. you would in, in, in the shoulder versus the hip. Right. Um, but going going towards like the classification system, um, CAM style FAI means that uh, the, there's a bony prominence on the femoral neck of, um, of the hip. And by having that bony prominence, you know, you're increasing the volume within that hip. That's already a pretty tight packed structure. And you're going to be having a little bit less motion because there's bone running into acetabulum. And then the pincer style of the pincer style of classification is basically the opposite. So the acetabulum is the problem. So you have a, a bit of a deeper acetabulum or you could have like bony outgrowths on the ends of the acetabulum. Right. So that's the first pillar is positive imaging findings showing either a cam or a pincer um, morphology when it comes to just the bony shape. Um, so, so that's yeah. the first thing. But the, you know, the, the confusing thing about that is that a lot of people have that cam morphology but don't have hip pain. So mm-hmm. I think from, from the research that I did, 65% of all athletes have a cam morphology in their hip, regardless of whether they have pain. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not one of these things where you can just come into physio with an x-ray and we can diagnose you with FAI just because you have a cam in your hip. It's something that we see a lot in people who have no problems. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Well, and, and this is where a nice cluster can come in handy. And... You know, imaging is only one part of the story. So um, it, it's kind of funny to think, but these patients have to have symptoms arising from their hip, yeah, as well as some of the structural issues that we're mentioning, right? So um, what, you, what you'd be looking out for is more of that uh, anterior style pointing kind of directly around the front side of the hip joint. Some, sometimes um, individuals will actually say it feels like a C c-shape around that anterior hip they're pointing to that area and they they draw a c with their hand right um needless to say you can have a bit more posterior pain with with this type of pathology but um just from some of the reading that i've done if you don't have that anterior hip pain there's probably a bigger chance that this is something else that you're dealing with 
Yeah, I think there was a study by a guy called uh, Huri, and he basically showed that everybody with FAI had anterior hip pain. Yeah. So it's like you could also have posterior hip pain or pain referred down the leg, but mm. if you don't have anterior hip pain, it's probably not FAI. Mm. So the, I guess that's the second thing, right? So you got your imaging, you've got your symptoms, yep. um, and then what's the what's the third? So the, the third, third one is um, is a special test. Uh, so fader, um, so um, flexion adduction and internal rotation kind of a combined movement that you would do on the patient when they're lying in supine and essentially what you're looking for is if you can re reproduce their symptoms right so if you do this on, on anyone with a you know regular style hip it's not going to feel the greatest but what you're really looking out for is is this the type of hip pain that you're coming in for and this is this what you're complaining about Right. Yeah. So it's a really uh, provocative test and it, it'll cause pain in a lot of people, but you're, you're seeing, is it your pain? And yep. so the way, the, the way I think about this three pronged approach is that it's almost like you have, like you're trying to make out what object you're looking at and you have like a really dim flashlight and you, with one of the flashlights, like you have no idea what you're looking at. <laughs> and then you know, you turn that flashlight off and then you have like another flashlight which turns on and mm. you still don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. And the same thing with a third. But with, with all three of those not great um, lights are illuminating that object, then you can kind of make out yeah. what you're looking at. Uh, emphasis on the kind of. Kind of. They're, so, all, they're a bit, uh, they're old flashlights. <laughs> yeah. So so in, in reality, in clinical practice, if somebody comes in and they don't have imaging and all they have is pain in the front of the hip and they have positive clinical tests, my diagnosis would be suspected FAI. Mm -hmm. You can't, based on the Warwick consensus, you can't say FAI confirmed because you need that third mm -hmm. piece of, of imaging. And maybe it's just worth mentioning briefly that in terms of imaging, the way they measure the CAM, um, which is the most common morphological change is something called the, the alpha angle, which is basically like you draw a line through the femoral neck to the center of the femoral head. And then you look at where the femoral head stops becoming spherical and basically that shows you where the cam starts and you just draw a uh, you just make an angle between those two lines and the bigger the uh, alpha angle mm -hmm. the more advanced the the cam is so um, ultimately another interesting point here is that you they kind of make a cutoff of like 50 or 55 degrees as this means you have a cam but as eric mara has pointed out um, if you have an alpha angle of, you know, 49 degrees or 56 degrees, mm -hmm. you might be classified as not having cam or having cam, but like there's probably plenty of people who, you know, what does that tell you, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, and this is worth noting that um, this Warwick Agreement was what, in 2019? I think it was 2016. 2016, yes. Yeah, so so. Um, the literature around FAI is ever developing. And, uh, you know, we don't have the most perfect way to diagnose it. And, you know, there's going to we're we'll be able to poke a lot of holes in the argument um, as to like the diagnosis, the alpha angles, all this stuff. So we're yeah. still in the early stages, right? Definitely. So I feel like that gives us a good sense of like what we're talking about. Um, one last thing that's worth noting is that when it comes to the pain generators, like source of peripheral nociception is always an interesting question. Um, in FAI, it seems most likely that it's not actually the, the cam morphology itself that's an issue, but it's the cam causing damage to the labrum and the underlying cartilage 
in the ligaments and teres, which can which have are more not like more nociceptors, and can cause more pain. So, this could be one of the the reasons why a lot of cams are asymptomatic is because maybe they have the morphology, but they haven't loaded it enough or in a certain direction, certain magnitude, volume mm -hmm. to piss off those other structures and and cause them mm -hmm. to become sensitized and irritable. Yeah, and it presents on a spectrum, right? Because if we're going to throw some numbers around, uh, the presence of uh, labral pathology in symptomatic patients is around 64%, and asymptomatics, you know, 56%. Yeah. Um, same kind of idea with the chondral pathologies and ligamentaries pathologies. There could be some issues um, that, you know, the asymptomatics might have there but you just don't it hasn't just got it hasn't gotten to the point where it's nociceptive and i think it's worth saying so i think labral pathology is, is a it's a closer mm -hmm. um yeah it's closer between symptomatics and asymptomatics mm -hmm. whereas chondral pathology is like present in 64 percent of symptomatics and 12 percent of asymptomatics so yeah. less likely to have chondral pathology and be be pain-free um but Anyways, it's it's a crapshoot, and like every element of the diagnostics with FAI is fraught with <laughs> with issues. Yeah, for sure. And, so. and and a really good example of figuring out like what the person's history is, what their loading patterns are, like what level of sport they're playing, how long they've been out of sport, um, just to get a sense of how much stress that hip has taken over the years. Yeah, um, and bef before we move on, like, do, do you have a good understanding of of why it is that cam the, the the cam develops like would you say it's it's um um i guess the reasoning would be that um early in age there's the opening within the uh, growth plate and if you were to um you know participate in like high level sport where you require a lot from your hip joint um just the, the just the amount of stress going into that growth plate can stimulate the production of bone um, so, which is not necessarily favorable, right? But it's just kind of a physiological response that happens to stress. Right. And then, uh, later in life, do you know the age when that bony, bony growth plate closes? I think it's a, I think it's kind of a, like a mid to late teens mm. type thing. So, yeah. So then yeah. you're kind of in the scenario where, you know, that early loading pattern of, of participating in all these sports and like doing all, um, all the high level activity kind of leads into like later pathology right right so it'd be, it'd be interesting to, to see someone like gets into a high level sport you know when they're when they're 19 right yeah and it probably a little less chance of developing fai well and it, but you know i've also heard that the bony adaptations might be adaptive in terms of like giving you a i don't know like a making it easier to cut and almost giving you some sort of structural stability mm -hmm. within the hip mm -hmm. you know what i mean like if you're loading in that direction maybe at a certain threshold a cam morphology is, is actually beneficial for performance. It's just that it spills over into pain maybe as, as the pathology of the tissues around it advance. I, I kind of like it almost, it's, an, it's kind of analogous to when young baseball players get that um, bony, what is it, retroversion of the- Yes, um, like that adaptation, adaptation response, right? at yeah. the uh, humeral growth plate to mm -hmm. allow them to get that crazy amount of uh, external, external rotation, rotation yeah. so they can perform at a certain level but that leaves them vulnerable later in life to a lot of shoulder issues mm -hmm. so performance and health kind of sometimes does have a trade-off it's like that whole like we want to be that whole orthopedic cost thing oh my gosh is yeah. not 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 to get into that 
Um, but but it's it is a thing at a certain threshold. It's just that there's a bell curve, and uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And, it, and yeah. like this, the simple things of playing high level sport, you know, all through high school, and then going off to university, and deciding to focus on your academics, and you know, le- leaving your hip at at this perfect time where it doesn't become symptomatic, right? Like these, all these little variables can can play into uh, the patient that's in front of you, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A hundred percent. So I think one other point that's that's worth bringing up is just that people with FAI ha- tend to have a lot of pain. Like their quality of life scores tend to be comparable to people with end stage hip OA. Yeah. Which is um, so they're, they're in a they have a lot of disability. They and and when you think of the population that it presents with, it's typically people who are playing like rec soccer. They're kind of past their prime, but like still want to go and, and have recreational sport as part of their life. And they have work commitments and family commitments and they're just in agony suffering. So it's it's like there's a huge um, impact. Would you say that part of this quality of life issue could be from the fact that it's often missed on diagnosis? Absolutely. I think it's possible, but, you know, it, it's mm. it's also it's also just yeah. like a. So it's hard not to use your hip. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. The for positions sure. that are that are um, mm. painful, I think, are, are hard to avoid. Maybe. Yeah, and yeah. and I guess uh, we'll talk about it later in the treatment side of things. But providing some good education and management strategies on how to deal with the hip pain, right? Because it's kind of like our PFP discussion. This might be an area that's just going to be a little bit more sensitive to you when you when you bump up your loads. Yeah. No. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Okay. Cool. So maybe uh, we'll move on to assessment just a broad framework and I think it's it's worth talking about you know from a new grad perspective if you're a student on clinical rotation somebody comes in all you know that is that they have hip pain how are you how are you conceptualizing what your assessment's going to look like you know I think because we have some good algorithms for lack mm. of a better word in 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 the hip that kind of give us a a roadmap on how to assess it yeah, so, so maybe let's start with some some subjective um, yeah questions. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a really good one where actually diving into their history of sport can be really valuable. Um, you know, getting a sense of what kinds of sports they played at a young age, because you might see someone in their thirties that is an office worker and just plays recreational soccer, but they grew up playing, you know, like high level hockey, for example, or high level. Um, soccer to that matter um so getting a sense of their loading patterns at a young age because we were talking about that bony outgrowth i'd say that 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 was that's a big one and then um diving into when this hip pain is a problem for them Um, not in the athletic sense but maybe just in the day-to-day some Mm -hmm. of these patients can complain about like clicking catching in their hip Uh, certain motions that tend to be problematic can kind of be like what you'd imagine a straight leg raise would be so like getting out of bed and like rotating, getting out of a car and using your hip in those kind of weird positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess, I mean, if they're a gym goer, often squatting is really aggravating because it takes you into that yeah. flexed position. I guess if you're thinking about motions, you could think about your fader test. So yeah. anything that's involved in a lot of flexion, adduction, internal rotation, there's been this huge increase in golf over the last couple of years with the pandemic, right? Yeah. So. another area you know where you're getting that like this unique amount of internal rotation through your hip right that is 
like it's an, it's just an interesting movement like when you're thinking about sports as a whole right yeah and, and i think like i didn't have a good handle on this maybe a few years ago but like when you do that fader test you, you have the hip in open chain context they're on their back you crank them up in that open chain position but really anytime anybody rotates over their body mm-hmm. like as they're cutting or they're like playing squash and they rotate in like that's the same position it just is in a closed chain context where your body's your pelvis is rotating over the femur as opposed to rotating like lifting the femur within the acetabulum yeah and then you can imagine all the stresses of you know the upper extremity and the trunk going into that femoral head femoral neck area right so yeah thinking about an enclosed chain might like it makes you appreciate how much force that can go into that hip yeah um and and so like when we're thinking about other subjective pieces of the history um when we're like let's first of all maybe just have a quick discussion about red flags yeah of course with, with the hip because obviously that's step one is ruling out red flags and yeah um so an interesting thing that uh, i've learned in this process of researching this is that um cancer can present in the hip quite a bit um a little bit more than you know the other joints that that we keep our radar for so just getting a sense of the the quality of the pain you know the the night kind of pain keeping you up um with sleeping any history of cancer you know family history yeah um we can see with that uh aspect that we were talking about the bony outgrowth there might be a little bit of a genetic um factor Mm -hmm. at play so it's i think it'd be worth talking about um, someone's history, like family history of hip pain, like if there's anything anything else that they've dealt with totally. in the family. And then maybe like kind of when we're thinking about different populations, asking about their, like for a female, you know, have they recently given birth? Like do they, it could, is it possible this could be like a pelvic girdle issue? Yeah. Um, hormonal changes there. Um, yeah. And and then I guess you have your, your, your infection yeah thing where if somebody has like an acute fever and they got like a you know acute septic joint <laughs> that's not a good thing yeah and think thinking um, about all those um, lumbar red flags right so carnequina yeah any sort of uh issues with going to the bathroom right like those big ones any sort of weird numbness tingling like we're not really expecting that as much with with this type of issue no it's going to be like a sharp pinchy pain in the front Mm -hmm. of the hip if it's just fai and and you know like one of the other things that's been studied is if somebody has a limp then i think they're seven times more likely to have hip pain like hip issues than spine issues oh that's so that's a really good subjective um piece of info yeah because um as, as we'll talk about in our assessment, the lumbar screen is quite important for this population, right? Because a lot of pain from the low back can radiate into the hip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's critical. And it's and a fun it's a fun diagnostic puzzle, this one. Like, the, this is one where you're really going through, you know, you're, you're stretching your knowledge and you're putting a lot of pieces together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, like, get, and you, you can get a little bit of, a little bit of everything, right? You can have someone especially in an athletic population, they're probably not new to pain, right? So um, you kind of got to rule out all the noise, right? Like, oh, I've had a history of this back pain, you know, my knees hurt, but I'm also dealing with this hip pain with like, you know, X, Y, Z, right? So it's a good chance you might not be treating one thing. Yeah. Um, So, okay. So when we're just to kind of like close the loop on subjective symptoms, I think you alluded to this earlier, but one of the critical points is to really dive deep on precisely what volume of loading 
they get symptoms with. So like in school, we learned this as irritability, you know, um, mild, moderate, severe. But Mm. is it the kind of thing where they're fine in their daily life? They're not really in pain, like sitting there. But when they get to like 60 minutes through their ballet or their soccer game, then they start to feel it. Like that's a very different thing than, oh, like it's hurting to like get out of the car. And it gives you a sense of like where, and, and, and onset, right? Like when did this start? Is this something you've been, like um, every FAI that I've seen has been dealing with it for like minimum five years and has seen like Most on average five yeah. providers. Yeah. So it's important to get a sense of, are we nip, are, can we nip this in the bud and it's just maybe an, an acute workload issue or is this like a really chronic thing which has probably progressed into some pathology and that just like, helps you set your expectations yourself and then maybe guides your prognosis. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and this is a, a nice little anecdotal experience, right? I've, I've, uh, there's a good masterclass on Physio Network about FAI and kind of got us thinking about doing this podcast. Um, but I remember I did that masterclass like right when I started working and I treated a patient with an acute uh, bout of FAI. Um, she was telling me how she's had hip pain before, um, but it's never really progressed uh, in the way that it had like when I was seeing her on that day. But it was interesting. She was she had been playing soccer all summer and field hockey tryouts were starting at um, for school. So she was doing like a lot of a lot of loading, right? She was doing a lot of volume that she's not used to. And uh, like just after watching that uh, master class, like I was thinking all doom and gloom because, you know, when you first learn about this topic, it can seem like we don't really have as many options for treatment. So we kind of talked about, you know, what the outcomes are, you know, that this might be like a little bit of a longer recovery. Uh, We might be, you know, up to six months and the pain might still be there. Right. And um, I remember seeing like the look on the dad's face, the, the, and the the daughter's face, and they were just very disappointed. Right. And ended up never coming back. Right. So that's a good explanation where, or good um, example where you don't really have to, you, or you really need to understand where that patient fits. Right. Because probably could have been able to treat that hip pain within a month if we kind of dialed back some of the the, the practice and the, yeah and everything else she's got going on right well yeah and and i think it's such an important point the um all the prognostic data is on like the mean right mm-hmm. it's like what is the mean recovery there's people on both ends of that curve it's a bell curve yes and is. so yeah, we, we forget about that we, we don't treat the mean like we treat an individual and so like the individual has all these other factors that are kind of tweaking your expectations and like so it's like the way i like to frame it now is okay here here's the typical window of like the prognosis but it's possible this could get better really really quick mm-hmm. i'd like to see changes within a few weeks if we teach you how to modify your painful activities etc 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 but it's also possible this could be a longer term issue yeah and, but maybe you have that conversation differently depending on what your intuition is about the drivers of their pain and whether it's like you know you, you kind of get a sense of what is their ceiling for sure yeah and um an interesting point that i got from eric mara was that maybe five years ago hip, hip, uh, these patients that were coming in with fai had a little bit more trouble with adls um so kind of going back to like you know rolling out of bed getting out of the car like and you know very symptomatic but it seems like you know we're, we're getting a better sense of how to diagnose this and we're able to catch this a little bit earlier so um, and when you say they had a tough time with ADLs because it, it was underdiagnosed yeah, for that, such a long time. And that's what I was alluding to earlier, right? Where like, right. 
you know, these patients might have a lower quality of life because they've been living living with it for quite a while. But there is a good chance that you might see someone with the first time that they've irritated or like the first onset of pain yeah. and they present in that FAI category, right? Totally. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we're probably going to move towards that as the future, like, like, you know, within the next five years, for example. Like, Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And maybe as, as people start to see physios more often and, and chiros mm-hmm. before, you know, going through the, the surgical rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, so, Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really good context. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, is there anything else that you want to touch on in terms of subjective, subjective symptoms? Um, I mean, one that I think is worth chatting about is like sitting is often a aggravator for these people. And, you know, that's one of these things where like, it's very simple. If somebody hasn't tried, if somebody sits at an office job all day um, and like even just modifying that position a little bit like a lot of times people are told that they need to neurotically sit up straight all the time right yeah. so that they're in that like anteriorly tilted position with the pelvis which drives relative flexion of the hip which can aggravate their symptoms so even just some positional education this can, is so relevant with like lumbar issues as well and just yeah. like finding what positions are sensitive in and then often they just don't even realize that they're they're pissing it off continually yeah um and and permission to slouch in this condition is a huge one because the more we posteriorly tilt the pelvis the more we're kind of like freeing that that abutment between the mm-hmm. cam and pincer at least in theory when we think about the biomechanics of it yeah definitely definitely and then um just as a whole right like when when you're going through this first year of working right if, if you're listening to this as a new grad just providing those low hanging fruits like it, it's you're going to see this with every single issue that we talk about like every, every single clinical pattern right so um it, it could be easy it could be a lot easier than we're thinking right and that's why it's it's not a good idea to tell someone okay we need to work on six months of strength training to get you to get you better right yeah because when you, maybe it's like you could really the yeah. the, the analogy is like fixes. you have a you have a cut and they're just like bending their finger continually and they're not letting the you know mm-hmm. not letting it heal yeah and and <laughs> and, and to, it can be a little bit um abstract for some people to get a sense of what like trunk control feels like right so it might seem simple to you like what apt and ppt mean but it could be revolutionary for your patient in front of you yeah and yeah. and never to take for granted that your patient knows what uh what you know yeah um Know your worth. <laughs> Do you know, one of the, I think this is really worth expanding on a little bit. We often think of treatment as like hip distraction techniques, soft tissue techniques, whatever. And when I first started off, I felt a little bit, a little bit useless sometimes in those really acute phases because I'm not somebody who like uses modalities a lot. I don't mm. pull out the laser and the ultrasound and I don't use Accu and, and manual, yeah. I don't really do a lot of manual. Like sometimes mm. I do, but what like it's man, just if you can identify an aggravating movement and teach somebody to avoid it, that is worth 20 minutes of like messing around with their pelvic position while, while sitting or um, like that education, like we think of it as Oh, I got my education points, got to do that, but I got to get some treatment in. Like that is treatment. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And you yeah, don't, you, you can't, you sh- I can't overstate how important it is to give yourself credit for, for understanding those things when your client might have no idea that they're just like poking into a position that's painful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What I've been trying to work on over the last three months is summarizing my sessions. So big takeaways, because 
Um, for some people, like these exercises won't mean anything in six months. But if you can give them a better sense of their body, that might be huge. For yeah. Them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so. Oh, actually, if you want to maybe talk about um, the distinction between a little bit like biomechanics rabbit hole. So what I'm thinking is we got this off of Eric Mayer's podcast, but I think it's quite uh, useful to talk about patient coming in with some hip pain because their strength coach has been forcing them to squat within a, uh, a toe in motion, you know, mm-hmm. squatting like everybody else on that team. Yeah. And they're only getting pain with that motion. But then when they go into their sport, they're fine versus someone that's modified everything within the gym and has worked their butt off to try to get rid of this pain, but they're still getting pain in sport. So yeah. Um, yeah. again, kind of, distinguishing your populations right like a little bit of an easier fix versus a little bit more nuanced right and it's just a little bit harder to change someone's biomechanics when they're in sport versus within a lifting setting definitely yeah Yeah. if somebody if somebody has pain if somebody has had pain in the gym and they're just like like we said they're cranking away in that pattern and you can teach them a way to avoid those positions and modify those movements temporarily while things settle down it tends to just do way better than the kind of person who's very aware of their body. They've modified, if they've modified all the aggravating activities independent of their sport, but then they go back to sport and they just can't manage it. Mm-hmm. Then that's where my prognostic, um, sense isn't quite as optimistic. Having said that, you know, I'm dealing with a patient right now where that's kind of our issue. He kind of fits into that category with FAI. And what I'm thinking is that maybe there's a gap that needs to be bridged between the heavy lifting in the gym and then the sporting activity, like a pl- more plyometric activities, more kind of rapid energy storage release. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think this is a good point to show the distinction between strength training and uh, sport. Like yes. there, there's still a bridge that we have to yeah. uh, gap between that. And it's really cool to see that there's a bit more of a focus on the, the plyo side on, um, like the endurance side on like just getting a little bit closer to yeah. sports specific routines. Well, and dude, like you just, you think of the, you think of what sport is like the movements you get into and the, the rate at which you get into them, like the demand on the tissues is so different than a squat with a barbell or a deadlift where you like can, reps, you yeah. can control your position. You can constrain the the movement in whatever way you want to to place tr- stress on tissues that you you, you want to mm-hmm. in sport you're like you're like you you're you're reacting in a dynamic system with like it's it's an open loop kind of activity yeah. and so it's so tough right because it's really hard it's really hard to change somebody's biomechanics in sport like you might get them to be able to do a lateral step down with good pelvic control but like can they land on the basketball court with that? Like, is that going to transfer? And that's a huge topic. Massive topic. Yeah. But and that's like the discussion of when does biomechanics matter, right? And you could see that for someone with FAI, changing their squat pattern a little bit or giving them a little bit more freedom of movement in, in a squatting pattern, if we're talking about that, is huge. Like, biomechanics matters. Sport, mm-hmm. like, sometimes the ugliest movers are the best, most elite athletes, right? Yeah. You see LeBron James squat, right? <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah, horrendous, right? Great basketball player, But he's, yeah. the, he's the absolute goat yeah, in his yeah, sport. Exactly. Um, it's, just, it's an interesting topic that, you know, we haven't found the answers to, but just considerations to 
yeah. take into account. Like, but, you, you know, it, I, you. It's, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning, though. Like, I think uh, when somebody when somebody has a really specific sport and they're getting into those positions a lot, a lot of times what you're just trying to do in the gym is just be almost as non-specific as possible. Yeah. Just expose them to positions that feel okay. And mm-hmm. we often think about sport specificity as like, we got to mimic the positions and mm-hmm. like maybe just don't injure them in the gym. And yeah. they'll be great. You know what yeah, I mean? Totally, like, totally. like, I don't and, care. And, and just give them like a bunch of options. <laughs> yeah. Give them some movement options so that maybe yeah. they can use them once or twice when they're, yeah. or maybe they'll unconsciously select them. In, in order so to difficult. shunt a little bit of stress yeah. away from that sensitive structure. Right. And then thinking about like a soccer player versus like a javelin thrower. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, like, it's, a, it's, yeah. A, it's a lot easier to screw somebody up with strength training than it is to, to make them. Like, I think you have to be a bit more thoughtful. Um, definitely, when definitely. it comes to optimizing performance, we have to be careful about, about what we're doing and what we're saying. And mm-hmm. Needless to say, it's a, it's a bit of a rabbit hole and can be complicated, but um, big takeaway from that is just know the person in front of you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Don't yeah. treat the, the, the mean, right? Yeah. Treat the person. Huh. Um, <laughs> treat the uh, person, not the scan. Dude, our, if, I, uh, if I had a dollar for every Instagram post I saw, that oh was my like, gosh. Oh. our professors will be very proud right now. <laughs> uh, anyways. Um, okay. What next? Objective assessment or, Oh, actually, you yeah, know, one more thing, uh, red flag thing to look out for, uh, femoral neck stress, uh, fractures. Yeah, you've had some nice experience with this one over the last year. Yeah, I had one that that was like really nebulous anterior hip pain. Went on for maybe six months before they saw a few providers. Ultimately, it wasn't making sense. They went and got an MRI, and it was a yeah, a femoral neck stress, like a bone stress injury. And uh, you know, it's just that's another good one to be aware of and rule out those things that can be sinister, right? Which like really require offloading. Definitely. So, yeah, yeah there's there's a lot to a hip. <laughs> a lot to your hip. All right. So, diving into the objective portion of the assessment, the first thing we want to do with any hip issue is obviously rule out the lumbar spine first, right? So we talked about some of the subjective indicators that it could be a low back issue rather than a hip problem. But when we're thinking about objective signs, what are the first few that come to mind? How would you, uh, you know, concisely rule out the low back? So think about uh, like discogenic issues and think about like facet issues. Um, they can have a little bit of refer into the hip. So um, repeated motion screens, quite sensitive. And the facet joint um, related pain can be diagnosed with some extension rotation test, right? So with a high sensitivity, if they don't present, if, they, if they're not positive with that, then there's a good chance that, you know, you can exclude them from having that issue, right? So right. two easy, easy tests, right? They, they shouldn't take more than um, like five minutes of your time, right? And you don't have to go dive into an entire repeated motions test, um, but you could definitely even just screen like their lumbar AROM and a couple combined movements, right? Yeah. Within standing, I can tell you a lot. Absolutely. So, I mean, my framework would be stress the spine, um, put some some stretch on the nerves, like, so do a slump test. Mm. Uh, that obviously could be painful in the hip because of you're flexing the hip, but if you do an, like a straight leg raise and yeah. you just like crank on that uh, ankle in the dorsiflexion, get them to lift the head, their hip's not gonna be in more than like 60 degrees of flexion. That'll give you a good sense. If that's negative, you're probably not dealing with like discogenic referral or 
You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So that sure. that would be one. And then when we move towards the when we think about the SIJ, so the sacroiliac joint, we have the the pain provocation tests that Mark Glaslet yeah. has put in place. So, you know, I even just doing the thigh thrust test apparently has a sensitivity of eighty seven percent. Pretty decent test. Um, usually the three that I'll do, if I'm kind of just doing it quickly, is I'll do thigh thrust, I'll do compression, and then I'll do sacral thrust. And if those three are negative, then we get a pretty good, um, pretty good chance that it's not coming from the SIJ. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. guess for the fracture and that we were talking about, like the stress fractures, there's the patellar pubic percussion test with a very high sensitivity in the fulcrum test. Um, so just just some just some ones to consider. Just right? a, so just that, a note: fulcrum test better for like mid portion femoral shaft fractures. It won't really get that femoral neck in as much of a torsional like load and would you um think to experience like the pain would be a little bit more uh, inferior as opposed yeah. to like straight anterior into that hip joint with with femoral shaft or f- femoral yeah, shaft. yeah yeah for sure i would imagine yeah. it'd be right over over the area of the the damage um but with the femoral neck um stress fracture it's like the one that i saw there was fader was totally um uh, it was well tolerated. There was no pain with that. So yeah, and this and yeah. this goes towards the value of fader, right? So um, because like if we're dealing with an athletic population, we might be seeing some psoas tendinopathies. We might be seeing like athletic pubalgia. We might be seeing like adductor tendinopathies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a good chance that fader is not going to be painful in those positions. Could be a little bit painful, but this is where it's important to distinguish if that is the patient's pain that they're coming in with. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a there's a good paper. I, f- I forget. It was probably Mike Ryman, <laughs> the Doha Agreement on groin pain. Anyways, they, yeah, yeah, they they classified the like once you've ruled out red flags, the lumbar spine and the SI joint, you can basically have five buckets of anterior hip pain be adductor related pubic related like you said inguinal related hip flexor related and then you've got your articular hip joint ball and socket problems yeah so going towards what we were talking right at the beginning of the podcast this is like an articular issue right like you're yeah. there may be some noise coming from the surrounding musculature especially if you're dealing with someone with five years of hip pain yeah and has been you know banging through this and just tr- trucking on but at the end of the day you want to look at the quality of the movement in the actual hip joint itself. Yeah, and in my experience, like just doing like an adductor squeeze test is not going to be as provocative with somebody with FAI. Whereas I've had adductor strains, like it hurts if your adductor is painful. Yeah, palpation on the adductors is also a good clinical tool, right? Yep. If you press right on that groin muscle, and that's like their pain then yeah. there's a good chance that, you know. Yeah, and, and, and think about, too, the, the subjective is big here, right? Like, how did you how did you get your injury? Is it, Like, have you been doing this for a while? Right. Um, did, did you did you fall in a weird way? Did you get a slide tackle, right? Like, And, do you know, people have a good sense of what hip pain feels like versus, like, a muscle strain. Like, I would say the FA, because like, I'm a little bit pinchy on my left side, and it it's pinchy. Like, whereas when I've had groin pain, it's like, it feels like that kind of, like stretch that like achy kind of just ugh. yeah muscle activation yeah will, will, will create your pain right correct yeah yeah whereas it really does feel kind of like an abutment um i have a patient actually 
with FAI who would say, oh, that she's identified, that's like my labral pain. Like when she goes to a certain position and then she has these other provocative positions. So I have no idea if she's right. Yes. But yes, she yes, has yes. these like very distinct kind of, oh, that's that pinchy pain here, which is very predictable with certain positions. And then that's that other pinchy pain. So it's yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and it's an interesting one, right? Because um, we're dealing with anterior hip pain but not as much referral with this with this type of um, diagnosis as, as compared to like other conditions that w- that we can deal with, right? So definitely, um, yeah, yeah. I think that covers that point. Okay. But um, I guess going back to that um, agreement that you were talking about, the Ryman paper, um, you can see why they have these buckets of adductor, pubic related uh, groin pain, inguinal, iliopsoas. You know, ultrasound, MRI are going to be pretty sensitive for that, or, or would be more valuable in those cases because um, you're dealing with more of like a soft tissue issue, mm-hmm. and then that more hip-related style of pain, you, you'd you'd want to get some some imaging done, like for anything like bony morphology. Yeah, like just an X-ray, CTs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. So we talked about you know pain location. We talked about palpation. We t- and then you know we we mentioned a little bit. Um, about the special tests the most common ones are like we said fader and then faber right faber though f-a-b-e-r where it's flexion abduction and then external rotation um, is not a good test it's shown to really not have any predictive value so that's not worth doing (laughs) yeah Yeah, well you could do it if you want to but it doesn't tell you anything so um whereas the the fader test has what we would say is is it has a it's a sensitive test but not a specific test it has a useful negative likelihood ratio but it doesn't have any utility when it's positive so so i think uh good regression to dive into the stats now (laughs) yeah yeah we should and i yeah this is something that i i did a deep dive on maybe a couple months ago just understanding like the difference between sensitivity and specificity and then likelihood ratios and and you know like what's actually useful clinically as a as, as a physio like what are the numbers we need to know when it comes to these special tests because we kind of learn these special tests in school just as like well here's a bunch of tests for the shoulder like here's some specificity sensitivity numbers but when you've got a patient and you're trying to like cluster these things it's like what what do i do with that so yeah. You have to have a calculator in your mind. Right? Yeah, so dude. Actively calculating <laughs> all the numbers. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, Shouts out Elon Musk Neuralink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Um, they actually have these calculators on online that you can put all your tests into, and then they'll calculate you like a, a post-test probability. We'll get there. But we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, I, I, like a bit of a digression on on just what specificity and sensitivity are and then if there are any of any use as a clinician so like researchers when they're trying to determine sensitivity and specificity they take a test and they already have a reference standard which is like mri or an injection or surgery and they have that gold standard and then they compare they try the test on people who don't, like to find specificity, they try the test on people who don't have the condition. They already know the person doesn't have the condition, right? Because they've done that reference standard. So if the test is negative, it's by definition a true negative because they know they don't have it. Um, 
so very different to the clinical situation where we actually don't know what our patient has. We're trying to use the test to figure that out. So we don't have a standard, right? We don't no, have a reference. No. And so, so sensitivity and specificity are basically useful metrics for researchers, but they have zero utility. They have a directional utility for clinicians, but they don't tell us they don't help us kind of refine our our intuition as well as but, but they do yeah. feed into the likelihood ratio yeah yeah exactly so which so, is useful to us so generally like the rule you first learn in stats is that a specific test when positive rules something in so that's spin right spin and snout a specific test when positive rules something in a specific test when negative tells you nothing um similarly with snout sensitive test when negative rules it out sensitive test when positive tells you nothing so that's like the general heuristic um and and that's useful because so with the fader test it's a sensitive test it's not specific so when the fader test is negative then that helps us rule it out that's all we that can tell us but and that we wouldn't have a podcast on fai if uh, <laughs> yeah yeah honestly <laughs> that was the case right yeah yeah um but if it's positive, it doesn't rule it in, right? So you can't say, oh, you got fader, like, oh, you got your FAI here, right? It's like, all we can say is, if you if, if fader doesn't hurt, you don't have FAI, you know what I mean? <laughs> or we can't say it with that much certainty, but we can, we can update it's our- pretty close. <laughs> pretty close, right? Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, the, the bottom line is that as clinicians, we don't have the reference standard in front of us, so, sensitivity and specificity while directionally helpful don't tell us that much what the the term that's helpful for us the piece of information is called a likelihood ratio and basically the likelihood ratio has the sensitivity and the specificity of a test baked into it and then it gives you a number on the positive side from you know one up into the positive integers and then from on the negative side from one down to 0, 0.000 whatever um, by which you can multiply what's called your pretest probability. So if somebody comes in, you have to make a guess on whether they have FAI. So let's say somebody comes into the clinic and they have, uh, like they're a, they're a 20 to um, 30 year old male. Let's say they're a 25 year old male and they have a sporting history, they have anterior hip pain. Already I'm thinking, okay, there's like a 20%-ish chance based on the prevalence of FAI in that population that I'm that's what I'm dealing with. And so then I'm thinking, I'm kind of updating my intuition using all the other subjective factors we were talking about, and then I get to my faders test. So when I get to that test, what I need to know about fader is what are the likelihood ratios? The likelihood ratio in the positive direction for fader is very close to one. So if my probability is 20% before I do it, and I get a positive test, my probability after is still 20%. It's told me nothing. It hasn't changed my priors at all. But the negative likelihood ratio is in some studies as low as 0 0.09. And so if, if I initially have a 20% chance that somebody has FAI, if they're negative on that, then my odds go down to like 2%. Now there's a- Hence the snout. Hence the snout, right? So um, th there's like a compl complicated Bayesian calculation that takes you through that process. But generally, you don't need to do the math, right? It's just, uh, a recalibration of your intuition. So you need to know, you need to get a sense of, like if I could give myself a piece of advice about stats two years ago, I would say, 
understand what a, a, a nice high likelihood ratio tells you and understand what a really, really, uh, like what makes a likelihood ratio valuable. It has to be far from one, right? If it's, if it's one, it doesn't change your prior guesses at all. The other key point is that your prior guess it means everything. Like the, the, the silly example that gets bounded around is you could have a pregnancy test which has 100% specificity and sensitivity, but if a 60-year-old man came into your clinic with abdominal pain, you're not going to give him a pregnancy test. Even if that test is perfect, given the context that you understand about the person in front of you, it has no value. Hmm. So, so the priors will influence the, the aspect. And that's where like the art of the clinician is kind of having better priors and yes, maybe yeah, understanding yeah. like, given who this person is, what are the chances I'm dealing with X, Y, or Z? And then your tests can actually help you because mm -hmm. otherwise you're just throwing tests at the person and it means nothing. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I hope it makes sense for the listeners. We've probably we've probably lost all six of our <laughs> six listeners at this point. They're like, oh man, the math. Anyways, I, yeah, it's um, it's it's useful to understand this stuff though, and just to have it in the back of your head and and. It's a beautiful dance that you have to embody as a clinician, right? Like you're constantly getting swayed into certain directions based on the information that's laid in front of you. Yeah. And, and, and you're not like, like we said, you're not pulling out your calculator and doing math. You're <laughs> not you like, imagine? you know, oh, well, 0.2 times, you know, 0 0.09. And then I'm going to convert it to odds ratio through this like chart. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. Like you're just getting like a, and you can still be wrong. You're getting hotter or colder. Yeah. You're getting hotter or colder. Yeah. Right. Um, and you can still be wrong, but I guess all we're trying to be is slightly less wrong or increase the, the likelihood that we're less wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So I think that's all that I want to say about stats. Um, yeah, I hope that was useful. Um, it'll be interesting to kind of up, like start applying this into our framework, right? Because it, it can be a little bit much at first, especially when you're trying to dive down the rabbit hole of all these equations and whatnot, right? But yeah. At the end of the day, I think knowing those likelihood ratios really helps. And helps you read research. Yeah, helps you, you know? read research. Yeah, it makes it a little bit less daunting. Yeah. Um, you know, one one last point about stats and the whole special testing is maybe just noting that <laughs> there's this circular issue we run into where we, we base the sensitivity and the specificity of our tests on gold standards, which are prevalent highly in asymptomatic individuals. And so if we're saying whether a, a test has validity based on a gold standard that doesn't itself have any discriminant validity, then how good is the test, right? So this is like Jeremy Lewis's paper on, I think it was called like, is Why it special test? Yeah, special? put him out to pasture mm -hmm. in the shoulder. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Which caused like a real big social media uh, reaction. But so, you know, it's, it, it's complicated and, um, there's a lot of uncertainty, but mm. I guess what we're trying to do is layer as many dim lights on the issue as, For sure, yeah. as we can. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a good example as to why it's it's relevant to keep up to date, right? Because this, this could be a completely different field in five years, ten years, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we might get some better gold standards, we might get some better tests, um, and yeah. it changes constantly. Like I think the shoulder is, is in for an entire reconstruction of how we you know frame our discussions around that right there's a little yeah. bit of a gong show in that era 100 percent. so apologies to anybody who i gave ptsd there talking about stats <laughs> <laughs> at university but yeah. you know, it's um 
Yeah, it's slightly uh, more interesting when it actually applies to my life, you know? Yeah. I didn't really pay much attention when it was like these abstract problems that I cared not at all about. Yes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's like, oh, like this actually helps me determine whether a patient, you know, what course of action I'm taking with them, then you, you may as well try to understand it. And it can make you feel confident, right? And that'll shine with your patient. Yeah. Right? You kind of know, know what you're looking at. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've chatted about the diagnostics with respect to the hip that have been studied you know as as regards validity maybe we should move towards more of the more of the functional assessment right more of like the what are we what are we looking at once we've done those diagnostic tests and yeah how how best to orient the rest of your assessment objectively um so just considering that usually someone's going to be presenting with um, this issue on one side. Um, I think you need to really get a sense of what their single leg function is. Um, and depending on how irritable they are that day, you can start with something as easy as like single leg stance and then move towards more dynamic single leg exercises like squatting and lunging and all that, those types of variations. Um, and I think considering the fader as a test and considering like the, the movements that tend to be provocative, maybe just getting a sense of how that person responds to certain movements. So trying to replicate like adduct adduction moments and flexion movements and rotational positions um, into, into your assessment can be quite interesting for like someone that's a little bit more higher level and, and has been managing quite well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, put them through a movement screen. Can you modify their pain? You know, what, mm -hmm. what, what hurts? What are our baseline aggravators? Can we modify that by messing around with your, your pelvic position? You know, can we modify that by messing around with your stance? If you put your feet wider, does that help? And mm -hmm. just making it this kind of creative process where you're not doing this rigid, if you, yeah. you're spending time in a squat you're not just being like oh squat hurts okay cool squats hurt and then on to the next thing it's like okay like oh, where does yeah. it hurt exactly what angle of hip flexion if i posteriorly tilt you can we get more range that's pain-free can we make it totally pain-free how about if i elevate your heels and give you an anterior load to like mm. bring your center of mass back like does that help and it's where like the assessment can become part of the treatment yeah right because you could you could spend the the rest of your session trying to go over ways to modify their pain um, and if you can modify their pain within a session, then that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, they, they, they will get better. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, get a little bit better than, than they are right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say, um, there's a lot of data we have like cross-sectionally that people with FAI have reduced adductor and hip extensor strength compared to controls. So again, it's one of those things where it's probably more of a, a consequence of having FAI, like they get weaker as a result of that as opposed to that being a predictor but just because something isn't the cause of somebody's pain doesn't mean it can't be a solution to it so yeah yeah it can give you some ideas for uh for treatment and um another use of you know having dynamometer in your in your office yeah yeah I, those, you know strength tests. i would say the adductors are one of the more ignored muscle groups that i just i never ignore with people i just think they're so critical for like controlling rotation and like frontal plane movement so just finding an entry point to doing like a copenhagen plank where somebody's really loading up their adductors it's a great way to to build some tissue tolerance there and mm -hmm. um and also over, over underlooked is the uh hip flexors as well absolutely yeah the hip flexors massive um, and then i guess going into the hip flexors 
big component of trunk control in this, right? With with modification of symptoms, and a simple example would be, you know, given the sense of what APT, PPT feels like, that, that tilting in the pelvis and seeing if you can kind of modify the pain that they feel through like those deeper flexed positions. Um, but also just being able to control their trunk through movement, right? So um, I think there's there's value in looking at their core control, you know, giving them uh, some sort of like anti-extension, anti-flexion, some side bending kind of yeah. um, uh, like uh, loads to kind of assess what they feel like. Yeah, yeah, and, and then just making it making it standardized. Like you know, a lot of times in my kind of assessments, I the majority of my my assessment. Um, when I'm doing my charts is looking at their functional tests and just describing how they move and what are their baselines like on a side bridge or a Copenhagen or a, um, a Palov press with extension, like what weight can they do? What weight, like, is there a discrepancy side by side? And, mm-hmm. and, and you can use time to your advantage as well, right? Like totally. with those isometric variations, yeah. like how well they can, like what their endurance is in those tests. Yeah. Or maybe like if you introduce uh, range into that, Mm-hmm. into that movement and they could have like real issues at end ranges like have a copenhagen isotonic um but just giving yourself like okay where's where what's point a you that's what your assessment is mm-hmm. yeah it, it, you're you mentioned a good point because i think when i was going through school charting was a little bit of an abstract thing for me um because i always thought that the charting would kind of encompass all of our subjective stuff and then our special tests but how do you chart like functional tests right and i think that's where the artistic side of being a physiotherapist comes into play because you can create your own kind of screens for people. If you're looking at like the hip and low back, there's probably a good like six or 10 movements that you should look at on that day and have like some good references for, right? Even if they're, they're not like backed by research or whatever in in the sense of like what your specific times are, you know, like what a, what a weird squat looks like, you know, that's not the vomit test that we, mm-hmm. we talk about. Right? And then, and then try, try not to write in the chart, like patient has a bad squat. <laughs> try to, <laughs> try to, to on, try right? to say like, you know, their, their trunk angle is like X relative to the ground. And like, yeah. you know, like exactly, try to make it exactly. something that so when you somebody else it, right? or somebody else could read and actually make sense of, mm-hmm. um, I like that. The art, the artist, Adrian Fliz is an, an artist with his hip assessment. <laughs> 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 Absolute Picasso with Trunk yeah, training. you can uh, you can do what you want, right? <laughs> yeah, paint your own uh, picture. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Um, so, be like, do you want to dive any deeper specifically into some of the trunk tests, or do you like is is that cursory overview enough when it comes to assessment? What do you think? Yeah, like we could. Um, I, so I think uh, to zoom out, um, look at adductor function, look at their rotational control. Um, so maybe, do, do you have a good a couple examples of what how you assess like how they can control rotation on their hip? Um, well, are you thinking more like trunk rotation or? No, just like hip internal rotation, external rotation, like how that would play into closed chain movement. Yeah, I mean, anything on a, anything on a single leg, like a split squat is gonna be a good template to mm-hmm. look at rotation and um you know i mean you on one hand you have the kind of closed chain internal rotation where somebody you can get somebody in a in a split squat and then turning their chest towards the side of the leg that's forward mm-hmm. and you so you're kind of rotating the pelvis over the femur in that way but then you could also look at like a something like a hip airplane where in the transverse plane you get somebody 
in kind of like a single leg RDL and then you just have them rotate away from that leg and then back towards it and what's their control there what's their balance what's their progress also a very hard test just for single leg balance and strength right so they can tell you a lot it is um i also yeah. like uh like curtsy lunges as well yeah um or, or even anything into like the frontal plane like a lateral lunge and just getting a sense of like what their knee looks like when when they're going through that motion and again we kind of talked about this in the pfp podcast but like more of a hip strategy more of a knee strategy are they trying to are they going into that painful pattern and is that what the issue might be that you can kind of modify or are they completely avoiding going into that painful hip right yeah. it can give you a better sense of like what you what you want to do in that first day yeah yeah totally um and and i think um the with the squat i made an instagram post about this a while ago about like pinchy hips and a squat and shout just out how, leo physio shout out yeah leo leo dot physio um the um the low-hanging fruit can just be teaching somebody to posterior pelvic tilt or not even teaching them to do it but just constraining them to do it like if you just give somebody a, a heel lift and give them a weight like a front squat as opposed to a back squat it's just going to change the way they orient their pelvis hugely which can free up so much motion so honestly man like i just find this all the time somebody has hip pain i've had a i've had one that i can think of where like i cannot find a way to change the movement to make a squat not hurt but I mean, like every single other person, I just, you get them in a, like a zercher position, like where they're like really getting a reach to get kind of allow them to shift their, their arms are forward and then they can shift their center of mass posteriorly. And then they can descend in the elevator and they get like 20, 30 more degrees of depth. And, and often people just haven't been taught to move that way. So yeah, definitely. it's more of a, as Gary Lehman's put it this way, like an accidental endurance coper. Uh, somebody who isn't trying to you know keep pissing up their head but like they just don't know how to move any different way so we're just giving them options yeah it'd be a huge like aha moment for that patient yeah it's like wow i can actually control my pain and i really like um andy chan who's a great physio on on instagram he has a probably in real life too but i only know him on instagram (laughs) yeah (laughs) he he had this great framework where he said he's always thinking with his clients do they need adaptability of a tissue or do they need variability do they need like do they need to just get stronger of glutes like do they need stronger glutes stronger adductors or do they need to learn a different strategy like do i need to give somebody options or is their quad weak and their knee hurts because they have like a 60 percent limb symmetry index mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah exactly so yeah because like going into back to our strength testing you might not find any differences between the sides and often you won't with this yeah and it can be tricky right like it's like what the heck what the heck are we supposed to do here but uh yeah being able to to change their painful pattern and giving them the variability with the movement on that first day again kind of shifting your outcomes right like what what is this recovery going to look like what and what is like that last thing that we're going to um close the session off with like how like how how long do you think we're, we're going to be working together and going with our stats discussion like getting a sense of like where that patient is going to fall into uh, a recovery plan right yeah no absolutely um okay at this point do you do you want to touch on like because we're kind of moving towards the treatment side of things and how we manage people with fai yep do you want to talk at all about arthroscopy like surgery yeah, yeah, yeah. So we might as well, because um, for the longest time, this was the way to treat FAI. It was to 
like basically wait for your surgical consult and it was kind of a waiting game and um there's some patients that still have that baked into them where like we haven't really given conservative management the best shot and when you look at some of the trials that compare conservative management versus surgical management surgical management seems to be trumping over conservative in the literature but when you look at what they're doing with the conservative management it's pretty low level right so we haven't really given conservative management the best shot yeah and even then like the meta-analysis that that joe kemp did who's like the leader in this field she found that the differences leveled out i think after i'm not sure it was 12 or 24 months but like arthroscopy had slightly better outcomes like very slightly but statistically significant at six months but at 12 months it was the same so when you think of the risks of surgery and you think of the you know there's a long rehab process after as well with surgery then you know and if it if differences level out afterwards anyways then for for the listeners like if if uh you don't get grossed out by what surgery looks like there's great youtube videos on how aggressive this surgery is and and you don't just like clean out the hip it's worth painting a picture right like they poke holes through the hip they have to do like a a little distraction of the joint so they can get in there so they they poke their holes they they put the camera in and then you have all these ligaments all this connective tissue that guards the hip joint right it's the capsule they got to just literally cut through that to get into so they the bone. slice that capsule open they get in there and then they look and ha- you know they see okay what's that cam looking like when we're imaging it now and maybe they'll shave it down with a burr and then they'll look at the labrum and is it off its root okay we'll tie that back up and you know put it back where it needs to be and if there's chondral damage sometimes they'll deal with the chondral damage but it, like it's a it's a pretty major operation even though yeah. it's a key kind of like a arthro even though it's an arthroscopy these used to be open surgeries like 25 years ago mm-hmm. um but at this point it yeah like it, it's gotten better but i mean the it's it's a very significant operation and the other thing is that so michael ryman who's like one of the leaders in fai research he said he works exclusively with fai patients essentially and he works with a surgeon who does a lot of these operations and i think he quoted something like you have to do 500 of them to become skilled yeah because it's very technical yeah it's It's not like it's not like an easy like an maybe a knee scope is like slightly less of a complex technical surgery yeah so like you'd want to have a surgeon that does this surgery through like the majority of their time right you can't really like shift around between different joints like you want a specialist if if you're thinking about this and it can be difficult to find based on the region that you're in right so so that also plays into your calculation like you can't just look at the mean data you know, like a lot of times these trials are like you have this, like Damien Griffin, who's like the leading surgeon on FAIs doing all the operations. It's like, well, if you just get your person who's done like three arthroscopies, that's going to operate on your hip. Like, are you going to get the same outcomes? I don't yeah. know. But even even thinking about um, with all of the stuff that comes with the surgery, like, you know, if um, all that said and all that said and done, having someone that, you know, doesn't know what they're really doing and and you know, snipping a muscle, for example, or like creating more damage in an area that that shouldn't have been damaged um, just because of the process of, of the surgery, right? Like all the complications that come with surgery can make your recovery that much more complicated. Yeah. Yep. Um, and and it's a long-term process. It's not, I think, I mean, so the, the there's a physio in England, 
his name is Mehmet Jim, the hip physio on Instagram, excellent resource for FAI. He's had FAI himself. He had an arthroscopy done and he's spoken about how like he thought that when he got out of that operating room, he could just kind of get back into his routine and did not appreciate the fragility of the structures that were healing and ended up causing a, a ton of issues. And, you know, he had pain with walking for like two years after. So, well, we were talking about quality of life earlier and how some of these patients compare to uh, patients with hip OA. And part of that just could be related to the fact that the 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 discussion that you have with those patients early on or the discussions that they have with their surgeons is is not the full picture right so like if if you're going into surgery thinking that when you're out of surgery you're going to be okay and like this is going to be a pretty easy process and most of the time it's not that can add into those quality of life issues because you've had hip pain for all this time you've been waiting for the surgery for you know surgery is not well in Canada at least right it can take quite a bit you know you get that surgery done you do your recovery and then a year after surgery you're still having hip pain and no one's really giving you the right answers as to why yeah um one last note about surgery is that there is some data showing that when they measure cartilage quality uh 12 months post arthroscopy the people who have surgery tend to have more uh, more cartilage deterioration over a widespread area than people who didn't so maybe that speaks to like things getting damaged at when the surgeon goes in um so you know i guess like the bottom line is that it's not without its risks it's not a silver bullet and you know if, if i had really symptomatic fai and this is what most surgeons that i've heard uh have said as well like they won't even consider operating on somebody unless they've done six months of good quality rehab so mm-hmm. emphasis on the good quality right everybody gets good quality physio first and then if they're disabled and do not have any modicum of a pain-free life then and only then is arthroscopy considered but you know back in the day it was like you oh you have cam on imaging let's get a little prophylactic arthroscopy yeah. done just to and that like there's zero evidence for for sure um yeah. Because at the end of the day, the surgery is there to reduce disability, right? And, and if you're doing it prophylactic, it doesn't really fit the picture. Like you're, you're not really, the patient isn't at that point where they're completely disabled because yeah. of this. So it, it is a good idea to frame it as more of this kind of last resort with a caveat of good quality physio, right? Because And, and we know that CAM is a function of the constellation of loading pattern genetic predisposition and con- you know consequent uh, labral chondral pathology so just having cam or some labral pathology on imaging like we it, it's so common in people that don't have symptoms mm. so and, and you may have seen someone with a cam injury like or sorry a, a cam issue and they're coming in for something completely separate, you're screening their hips and they have reduced internal rotation. Like there might be something at play there. Yeah. Right. So you, you can live with this and, yeah. and they go under our radar sometimes. Do you want to talk about the, um, like return to sport, the numbers on that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, for the athletes out there or for like your athletic population, um, when we're looking at a, a study from, uh, summarizing by Joe camp, 
57% return to pre-injury sport level. This is people that had cam resection and labral repair. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then within that uh, population, 17% return to optimal performance. So it's it's, it's tricky, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's, so you got a, a, a four and five chance to not getting back to the level of performance that you were at pre-surgery. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe it's still better than where you were, but I mean seems like it yeah it's not a battle definitely definitely it's important to understand that that it's not a silver bullet and you need your expectations should be set accordingly um yeah that's um it's tricky eh? it's um it's a good lesson how we should be um like well versed on the side of of surgery right like like knowing if the patient fails with us like where are they going to go to next right yeah and and just getting a sense of like is is the treatment that these providers or these um like experts within the field are providing like is it is it warranted by evidence right like what what does the research say about it yeah it's important because patients will ask you right like often they'll get like 10 minutes with their surgeon every three months if on a consult but like we're seeing them for an hour and so like we're their resource so even like we're not doing the surgery we're not the one providing them the risks and benefits and like Get, we're not like it's not our job to <laughs> open people up but mm-hmm. it's still we can be aware of the the science and the literature and give allow people to be a bit more informed on yeah. the decision they're making which ultimately like it's their decision it's their it's their body right yeah yeah, yeah. In, in comparison to like a hip replacement for example right like that's tends to be a pretty smooth going surgery pretty good like outcome measures after yeah after surgery yeah and some patients might think that you know my my grandma whatever like my aunt had had a hip surgery done yeah they they're they're back to doing everything that they're doing is this going to be like a similar surgery right yeah exactly um so i think it i think it'd be good to maybe chat about the data we have on like we do have a couple sham exercise trials on for what how does conservative therapy stack up and the one the one study here showed that um, physiotherapy-led treatment compared to sham or no treatment in people who didn't go on to get surgery, there was no difference at six weeks, but there there was a, a difference in favor of physio at three months, which is is a really critical to take on board. Like if you re- if you only treat somebody for six weeks, again, it's kind of, we had this conversation with PFP. It's more of a long-term process. In the mean, in the majority of people, yeah. you might see quick changes with some people, but not with everybody. Um, but too often we, we give up and somebody leaves and, uh, they never come back, but like, it's just important to get somebody on a management plan, keep in touch with them. It's not, do you know what I mean? It's not like we, it needs to be like two times a week in person physio for three months. It's just, it's like those time frames are kind of how rehab, rehab progresses with FAI. It's not, yeah, it's not it, one of these things that it, resolves. It's a it. tricky discussion in comparison to your like acute acute ankle that comes in you know like an ankle sprain for example yeah. and it's like yeah like I've, you, you've seen a couple of these get better like really mo- most of these people get better in a certain amount of time so like we're only really gonna be working together for like a month or so but yeah it's hard to have that discussion where it's like okay like we're we're gonna be in this for a bit of a long run yeah without scaring them you know going back to my example before. so so like i would say i'm more comfortable having that long-term expectations conversation if they've already been in pain for like multiple years 
like and they understand that at that point they're like well i I'm not, i didn't expect this to go away overnight because yeah you're not a magician right um but if, if somebody if like, like you said earlier if it's that first instance of hip pain then you're kind of more out more laying out how this could go yeah as opposed to saying like we're going to be working with each other for six months <laughs> and then they're like who is this yeah guy? you know yeah, like yeah, no try to take my money <laughs> yeah and then they feel better next week and you look like a donkey yeah exactly, exactly. you know yeah so it's a tricky discussion with these longer term injuries right yeah yeah um, okay, so hey, I, I'd like to talk about treatment a little bit, and I thought it'd be interesting to kick it off by asking you the question of, in your experience, have you seen people regain their range of motion that, that they've lost? Like if somebody comes in and they don't have a lot of flexion and it hurts to internally rotate, have you seen that get less provocative over time? Yeah, definitely. definitely. Like I, I've seen it get less provocative, but definitely with internal rotation, especially like don't be cranking into that hip trying to gain more range yes right like this is a little bit different than someone with some muscle guard in after an acute hip injury and how for a new grad or a student how would you differentiate between a a hip that has a lack of range of motion as a consequence of like a capsular intraarticular bony pathology versus muscle guarding uh do some contract relax yeah so nice and easy right don't don't spend too much time on it but um once you felt enough um like once you felt enough hips, right? Like I remember our professors telling us this when we were in labs because we were always doing our, our assessments on like healthy individuals. And we were like, what are we supposed to, like what does a hard end feel feel like? And they'd always say like, once you feel enough of these types of joints and it's like, I want the answer now, right? Yeah. Yeah, But, but yeah, it it makes sense. Like once you've seen a couple of these and, and you see that kind of more of like a capsular pattern, you could even think of like those, like what, what a frozen shoulder feels like. They're just a hard abutment at, at the end of the range. Right. Um, I've never seen like a muscle that's been in so much tone that it creates that quality of movement, right? But I think a, a quick screen would be the yeah. one. Contract well, relax. And, and contract relax and then maybe even just like cognitive distraction, like ask them about how their weekend was yeah. and then see if you can crank them into a bit more yeah, for IR sure, reflection because sure. yeah, yeah. often that happens. Yeah. Um, and in school, you'd kind of learn this as like difference between passive and active range. But I find in practice, sometimes just doing some contract relax, like PNF, is the most efficient way to okay push into me push into me and then let it go and then yeah do you get more range then maybe maybe it is worth doing you know like there's justification there for doing some soft tissue work or getting them to do some 90 90 mobility exercises to just like really relieve some of that muscle guarding and reduce that stretch reflex that kind of tone but in the case where you're dealing with that hard end feel and it hurts and it's pinchy there's no way I'm going near that. Like I'm not, like you're you're not. Please, please you, don't. Manip we um, the we joint. don't we don't stretch bones, as far as I'm aware. So um, yeah, that, well, it depends on what Instagram tells you. That's true, man. Yeah. No, having said that, a lot of people do those capsular mobilizations with bands, right? Mm-hmm. You get on all fours, you stick a band to your inner thigh, and then you kind of rock back and forth, and that can feel wonderful. But I think it feels wonderful not because it's doing anything at the actual hip joint, but because it just mobilizes the soft tissues and yeah. and creates a kind of, you know it's messing around with blood flow and for sure yeah uh, anyway and just the you know the like gate theory in a way right like just getting a different sensation into your hip right while you're rocking through movement um, so I think I think this is an interesting discussion when you're thinking about treatment outcomes. 
Well, you were talking about improving someone's range with flexion, for example, or an internal rotation or making those movements less provocative. So depending on how they're coming into you on day one, if we're thinking about someone that's having issues with getting out of the car, they've stopped playing sports for six months because their pain has gotten to this, to this incredibly painful state, it hurts with a lot of ADLs, you would expect that they have less, like their, those, their movements get a little bit less provocative with those fader type movements because as you naturally, like as, as you kind of calm things down at the beginning stage, and, and reduce the amount of, you know, tone and, and guarding and all the like psychological components of pain that go into that hip th through these different movements, the patient might move a little bit more efficiently, but don't think that you've necessarily like improved the range of motion of the bone moving, right? Like, right. like they're, they're provocative through their ADLs because there is just so much guarding and pain and everything else that goes into that hip, right? Which yeah. is like a lot more complex than just like bone like bone hitting with your toes a little bit more inward on a squatting movement mm -hmm. right yes uh and i had this discussion with a patient a couple of weeks ago where i was like for you fader that position is probably always going to be painful you, you could bring it on if you, you want you're going to gonna be able to make that hip hurt if you want to yeah it, right but um if you're if you're if the amount it takes to get an angry is X, we're just trying to move that up by a certain amount of points yes. so that you can live yeah. your life. Um, Definitely. And that's where it's interesting with the strength training side of things, because you're obviously trying to get things a little bit stronger, but you're also trying to give them movement options and allow them to get a sense of like what it feels like to not have pain in the movements that might have been provocative previously. Right. So yeah. giving them a little bit more awareness into that hip, which is like, I guess more of like a, a neural response. Yeah. Um, but, but get, like get a sense of that, like, like have understand what you're getting from your strength training and, and, and the stuff that you're doing with your home exercises. And even like when you're getting them back into like sports, right. They're yeah. going to start with a pretty small circle mm -hmm. that they can have like pain-free movement within. But as long as you're progressing them nice and evenly, you'd expect that that circle gets bigger with time, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting like um, lesson on on load progression. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I guess like your the, the variables that you're you're attacking with your exercise prescription, it's not always just biomotor qualities. It's sometimes it's yeah, it's that like kind of breaking that pain loop, right? And yeah, um, it's so it's so tricky, right? Because FAI is one of these things that gets talked about. That's one of the reasons I like it is because it's very mechanical. Same mm. with like lumbar radiculopathy, radicular pain. Mm. It's one of these things where there's still a bit of bio in the biopsychosocial realm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's still going to be that fear avoidance, and we're always trying to distinguish what is a movement that needs to be avoided because we're like irritating the labrum or what is a movement that you're just, you just have muscle guarding in and we just need to progress your confidence. You know, like when is the goal graded exposure versus when is the goal movement variability and when is it tissue adaptation? And mm -hmm. so it's like, this is, I, I think also like you, you would expect that you could improve someone's symptoms within a month. With, like within like two weeks to a month yeah. right like yeah maybe they're not playing a hundred percent but you would hope that you can at least calm it down yeah and like that's that's a great place to start right yeah 
and like you're not getting anyone stronger in those two weeks right but but you're you're creating like a connection between that that person's like you're giving them that that awareness of their body well and and let me ask you this question because this is something i struggled with a bit over um the last well i remember thinking about this maybe like eight or nine months ago um somebody with fai sees the image of the bones hitting each other smacking up against each other and then the irritated labrum and whatever they're like that's causing my pain how in god's name is doing deadlifts gonna help me when i've got this bony issue where it's Mm -hmm. just impinging do you know what i mean like how do you sell active physio as helping well i always resort to the analogy of a cut like a superficial cut that you've gotten or like a scrape right like you have it on your forearm and every time that you use that forearm you decide to bump into your door like when you're leaving your room for example and you decide to like poke into that cut constantly and kind of aggravate the tissue and you can see like the redness around the area because that like that cut is a little bit pissed off right so i think the first part like intuitively would be the the reason why they might get better is because you're not pissing off the cut right and i think that's valuable for most issues Mm -hmm. like like just avoid the motions that have been a bit painful and like calm down the inflamed structures right And, and it's like the more that you um the more that you get a, a better like subjective assessment and get a sense of like how the patient in front of you is presenting and like how they describe their pain, like 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 what number are they at in terms of like a vast number, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, what well, is Adrian, it? I have a really high pain tolerance, <laughs> so um, I don't even know if my number is right. But, but going into like their, their painful <laughs> movements, right? If I, I've had a nickel for every time, Dude, so yeah. No one there, yeah. Um, but yeah, like getting get a sense of like what the movements that are affecting the patient, like you, you might get a better awareness of like, is this joint a little bit more inflamed or, yeah. or is this more of like a, we poke into the area and it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit irritated, but like we can back off that and this patient can go for a 20 K run after they're squatting. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the only thing I'd add to that is sometimes I'll also make the argument that if we can increase the proprioception around the joint and the strength of the musculature in and around the, the joint you get better not pissing it off you get better <laughs> not pissing it off essentially yeah and and well and, and maybe there's some adaptation of the actual tissues as well yeah it's and not it, all variability but it could sometimes be adaptability it's always so interesting though how some people get better like so you have this like complicated patient in front of you that has like months of hip pain or like, like months of any other pathology right and you think that okay like you, you know your quad measures or your your glute strength is is very weak on that side and then the next time you see them in like two weeks they're 85 percent better like how does that yeah. work right like you didn't get them strong in, in those in those first couple sessions but it yeah. goes i guess like it goes to show like how valuable you know not pissing off the structures is right like showing them those movement options yeah and and i think it's easy to as a as a new grad who takes all their advice from online gurus it's easy to fall into the trap of well exposure is the way forward and you know tissue just needs to adapt and you know pain is just a function of nervous system sensitization like sometimes giving somebody the advice to back off 
is so critical. Yeah. Um, but we have a tough time doing that because the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction where it's all about movement optimism and you can handle this. You just need to be, there's no dangerous movement. It's just the movement you're not prepared for, mm-hmm. which is something that I say a lot to my clients, but it doesn't always apply. And sometimes <laughs> you literally just, it hurts to do this. Well, don't do that. Straight up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, it's, um, it can be funny for the patient because they're like, I came in for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, it, but, but for other people, it can be like, wow. But for other people, moment. for other people, it can be like, oh my God, you haven't moved your shoulder at all in like two weeks since you had a little, little sprain. Mm-hmm. We got to get that thing moving. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I think, yeah, the art is when to employ which piece of advice. We're all artists. I'm telling Dude, you. Dude, Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Picasso. <laughs> Okay, cool. I mean, that, that summarizes a lot of, you know, <laughs> that, that, that does a pretty good job of summarizing FAI it, in my book. There's a I, lot I, of I hope, uh, I hope for anyone listening to this for the first time and maybe has never treated FAI or like has heard horror stories about FAI, it can seem a little bit less daunting because at the end of the day, we're just kind of applying foundational principles of physiotherapy right like we we can overcomplicate it a lot with the crazy tests that we have and you know surgery can be so complex right and yeah. the outcomes of other patients right but we're in an ever adapting field so don't lose your basics yeah, yeah. okay beautiful well we'll uh we'll sign off for now then what do you think thanks for having me on cheers man Thank you so much for listening to the Paradox BT podcast. If you have any comments or feedback, give us a shout on Instagram. Adrian can be found at at commoncuriosity.pt and I can be found at at leo.physio. Also, if you haven't already, please give us a like or a subscribe on whatever podcast app you listen to so that you can get notified when new episodes come out. Once again, thanks for listening. Hope you got some value from this episode. See you next time.